Bible app or turn in your copy of the scriptures, if you would please, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 20. Uh, Luke chapter 20. And we're going to be reading the very end of Luke 20 and going into the very beginning of Luke chapter 21. So Luke 20 beginning in verse 45. And today we're going to look at verses 45 through chapter 21 and verse 4. Uh, In honor of the reading of God's holy word, if you are physically able, would you please stand and follow along silently as I read aloud Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 45. This is what the word of God says. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're continuing in our journey through the gospel of Luke, and we're still in what we commonly refer to as Holy Week or Passion Week, which began a few weeks ago when we uh, looked at Jesus's seemingly triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Now, our text today takes place on Wednesday of that same week. A series of conversations have taken place between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees throughout chapter 20 all of which were attempts to trap Jesus in his words, none of which actually worked. And now Jesus, quite frankly, is done. He's done talking to them. Uh, And he pivots in verse 45. And you see in verse 45, it says, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. So he pivots from talking to the scribes to talking to his disciples about the scribes. And so this is the last time he, he has already finished talking to the scribes. The next time he speaks to them, quite frankly, will be when he stands before them for a sham trial at the Sanhedrin. Uh, so he's now talking to his disciples about the scribes in the presence of the scribes. They can hear him, but he's not talking to them. Uh, pick it up in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of The scribes, which takes us to our first point. You need to see false teaching as more than just different or a little disturbing. It is deadly. You need to see false teaching as what it is. It is deadly. False teaching is the result of the twisting, the distorting, the denial of God's word. And millions of people are led astray, away from the one true and living God, far from the only gospel by which they can be saved, and led into eternal punishment in hell as a result of false teaching. And so you need to see false teaching as Jesus does. It's not just something that's it's a little different or it's a little off, makes me feel weird. It is deadly. That's the reason Jesus harps on it so much. 
It's not just that he dislikes the scribes. It's not that the scribes are just too strict for his liking or that they aren't relational enough or uh, that they're not loving to the people or that they tend to lack joy and just aren't fun to be around. It's not just a matter of preference. It's the fact that false teaching is in and of itself deadly, deadly. And he knows these scribes, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they are peddling something that is poisonous to the soul. Imagine for a minute a child is wandering near a road. We've probably had this situation, I'm sure. And you notice him or you see her. They're closing in on the edge of a sidewalk or the end of a driveway or the end of a yard. And you see them getting close to that road. Uh, you don't just say, hey, uh, baby girl, why don't you just come here? Or, or mildly say, hey, buddy, wait for me to go with you. No, you shout their name. You actually do anything you can to get their attention. You shout at the top of your lungs to get their attention to stop them in their tracks lest they continue to walk towards danger. You probably call out their name or yell, no, or look out. Now, I don't know that Jesus was shouting, uh, but verse 45 does say he didn't try to quiet his voice, right? Verse 45 says, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. So he certainly wasn't trying to be quiet about it. And verse 46, Jesus uses a word of stern warning, similar to look out as if somebody is walking towards danger. So he's not saying, listen, these scribes, these Pharisees, you want to kind of keep your distance. They're just not, ah, ah, you probably don't really like them. No, he's basically saying, look out, there's danger here. And you have these people, the scribes, whom society held in high esteem for one reason or another, and Jesus loudly warns people about them, essentially saying, look out, beware of the scribes. And so it certainly would have gotten their attention. The Bible, God's word, contains vivid and powerful language when speaking of false teachers. Now, several in our church family, including Pastor Brad and myself, are fans of John MacArthur's Daily Bible. It's a yearly Bible reading plan that takes you through the entire Bible, but does so with four readings each day. An Old Testament reading, a little bit in the Psalms, a little bit of Proverbs, and then a New Testament reading. Well, if you are in the camp of people who read the MacArthur Daily Bible, like I do, Thursday was a glorious day. And the reason it was a glorious day is because we finally, finally got out of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is 52 chapters of judgment. And so over 26 or 27 days, I started my day at 6 a.m. reading Jeremiah. It is God's word. I'm not I'm not poo-pooing on it. How much of the Bible should we read? Read your Bible. How much of it? All of it. Right. But I don't like it all equally. I'm just going to be honest. Like, so it is all God's word, but, but that's hard. 52 chapters of judgment is just hard. In fact, at our last church, our pastor decided that he wanted to spend some time in the Old Testament. And so he thought, you know what? We don't spend enough time in the Old Testament. There's 52 weeks in a year, 52 Sundays in a year. Jeremiah has 52 chapters. We'll do a chapter a week in the book of Jeremiah. It was the year of judgment and wrath. Now, but you know, you might say that sounds, that sounds rough. But I have to tell you, after having, after having gone through it, it is horrible. It, it, was, it was just horrible to, to spend 52 weeks in the book of Jeremiah. But so much of what Jeremiah prophesied about was concerning false teaching. I put some examples in your outline. Jeremiah 5 and verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. 
but what will you do when the end comes? Jeremiah 14 and verse 14, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to, or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Once again, this is Wednesday of Holy Week, Wednesday of Passion Week. Jesus has just finished his last conversation with the scribes in the verses preceding our text today. The next time he faces them will be after he is arrested and stands before the Sanhedrin. This is also Jesus' last time to teach about the scribes. Jesus knows what's coming. It's coming down to the wire. This is one of Jesus' last public appearances without wearing a crown of thorns. It's one of his last public appearances where he will not be hanging on a cross. And so knowing this, Jesus goes into specifics about the scribes. He wants to paint a picture in the minds of the disciples so long after he is gone, they would know what they're really looking at when they see the scribes. And he outlines five characteristics of the scribes that I've put in your outline as five characteristics of false teachers. He is speaking of the scribes, no question. But so many of these characteristics we can see in any false teacher that's any come, ever come down the pike. So let's take a look at five characteristics of false teachers. Uh, number one, false teachers go the extra mile in order to appear pious. Uh, they go the extra mile in order to appear pious. Take a look at verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. And you might say, well, what's the problem with walking around in long robes? There's no problem with walking around in a robe. In fact, in Numbers 15, God instructed the Israelites to add tassels to their robes, thus lengthening them, add tassels to their robes as reminders of his commandments. In fact, you might remember way back when we were in Luke chapter 8 and Jesus healed the woman who was bleeding, the woman with the the discharge of blood. Uh, Jesus had tassels on his robe. That's what she grabbed when she grabbed his robe. The scribes would wear robes, but the scribes would wear robes that were way fancier, way more expensive than typical robes. Robes, And they also had tassels on their robes, but they would lengthen the tassels on their robes in an effort to appear all the more pious. I really take this seriously because I don't want to just be reminded just by some little tassel. I have this long tassel. I want the commandments to be on my mind all day and all night whenever possible. I want people to trip over my tassels because I'm so pious. And so that's how they rolled. They, they wore their robes, but their robes were way more expensive. They had tassels like the ordinary Israelite, but it was really, really long. And Jesus tells people not to admire them, not to imitate them, but to beware of them. Look out, because he sees through the outward false display of piety and sees their darkened hearts. It's one of the characteristics of the scribe. It's one of the characteristics of false teachers is that uh, they will go the extra mile in order to make sure that they appear pious. The second characteristic, false teachers love to be recognized and greeted with formality. Again, in verse 46, beware of the scribes who, what, also love greetings in 
the marketplaces. They love to be recognized in public. They love when people say, hey, you're a scribe. Or, oh, they love when people call them rabbi. Neglecting to call a scribe rabbi was actually a very big deal and could bring about a heavy punishment. As they went about in public, they expected to be noticed. They expected to be recognized. They expected to be addressed in formalities. Uh, Not long ago, I mentioned the Mishnah, Mishnah, which was a written record of oral traditions that was passed down by the Jews. It was just just an explanation of how they rolled, of what they did. And so all the oral traditions, all of which was practiced, basically the unwritten rules, they finally made written and put them in something called the Mishnah. In it, it says this, it is more culpable to transgress the words of the scribes than those of the Torah. It is more culpable, it's more blameworthy. You are more guilty if you transgress the words of a scribe than the words of the Torah, which is the very word of God. The scribes also wanted to be called father because they saw themselves as the source of spiritual life, as the source of spiritual truth. Uh, They wanted to be called leader uh, because they saw themselves as the ones who determine direction and who determined destiny for the people. They were never humble. False teachers love to be recognized, to be greeted with formality. They love being seen in public and recognized in public. Uh, Characteristic number three, false teachers love to be seen among people of status. Uh, False teachers love to be seen among people of status. Look again at verse 46. Beware of the scribes who love what? The best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Uh, The Mishnah lays out elaborate, elaborate directions as to where scribes were to be seated according to their rank and to their, the number of disciples that they had or who was following them. Sometimes it's based on which one was the most learned. Sometimes it's based on which one was the, was the oldest. The Mishnah says they would always sit in the upper seats in the synagogues. They sat on a platform in the front at feasts. They were seated closest to the hosts. Uh, false teachers, these scribes in particular, love to be seen among people of status. So we're working through these five characteristics that Jesus lists specifically about the scribes. The the first three that we have focused on uh, focuses on their pride, right? False teachers go the extra mile to appear pious. They love to be recognized and greeted with formality. They want to be seen among people of status. It all really highlights their pride. Uh, But now Jesus moves a little out of pride and more into their hypocrisy and focuses more on their greed. Uh, The fourth characteristic, false teachers tend to prey on the most vulnerable members of society. Uh, They tend to prey on the most vulnerable members of society. Look at verses 46 and 47. 46 says, beware of the scribes. Verse 47 says, who devour widows' houses. Uh, Devour widows' houses. Now, in the book of Exodus, chapter 22 Uh, God says in verse 22, Exodus 22, verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow 
or fatherless child, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Needless to say, Jesus takes, uh, God takes this pretty seriously, right? And so as God is giving this commandment, he takes this pretty seriously. The, the, the penalty is pretty serious. But the scribes did not care for widows. They didn't care that the word of God says that and they didn't care for widows, The Greek word in verse 47 uh, for devour provides a graphic illustration of this insatiable desire for wealth that they had, such that they'd even take advantage of widows. Uh, A commentator by the name of Daryl Box said that instead of caring for them, the scribes took advantage of them by cheating them out of their estates, by mismanaging their property, by taking their houses as pledges for debts they could never and would never repay. It's not uncommon uh, for when somebody uh, loses a spouse for the remaining spouse, the, the, the surviving spouse, to come to a person who's a leader of their congregation, a pastor, uh, and say, help me figure out what I, what I should do. There's lots of things that I just don't know what to do. Uh, I remember one such time uh, where an older lady said, uh, I'm, I don't mean to sound dumb, uh, I'm a, but I'm a little embarrassed to say it, but my husband took, just took phenomenal care of me and my household, which was, which was wonderful, uh, but I don't know how to write a check. Like I, for years and years and years, he's just done it. And I'm so grateful for him, but I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what to do. And so uh, I'm not a financial advisor, but maybe there's a few little tidbits of advice I could give them and maybe hopefully connect them with somebody who can give them uh, excellent, excellent counsel. But you see at that time, I have a very vulnerable person before me and the rabbis, what they would do is they would have a very vulnerable person before them and they would talk that widow into basically giving them their money. They would talk that widow into uh, so that they could mismanage their property or take their houses as, as pledges, as collateral for debts that they would never repay. That's what the Bible means when it says they would devour widows' houses. Finally, number five, uh, the fifth of five characteristics about false teachers, specifically the scribes. False teachers distract people from God and call attention to themselves. Again, beware of the scribes, look at verse 47, who for a pretense make long prayers. For a pretense, for appearance, for show, they make long prayers. Now we know what he's talking about because uh, when we read through the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in Matthew's gospel, uh, in Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse five, it says, and when you pray, this is Jesus talking, You must not be like the hypocrites, referring to the scribes and the Pharisees. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The scribes and the Pharisees were not interested in that at all. 
Uh, They want to be seen. They want their prayers to be heard. They want, wow, look at how long uh, that rabbi prays. Wow, he must be so close to God. The fact that he goes on and on and on and on on the street corners or on the synagogues. Wow, look at him. So much of what Jesus spoke of we, say, we see in modern-day false teachers. Whether it's public displays of what appears to be piety but just looks a little off, whether it were photo ops with famous people or some vulnerable person, perhaps a widow, perhaps someone elderly who doesn't have anyone to help them or bounce something off of, so they're swindled into giving all that they have to some false teacher or false religious system. We see these paralleled in our day and age as well. Uh, Verse 47 says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Uh, In other words, anybody who follows false religion will ultimately not get to Christ. Uh, Anybody who follows a false works-based system of religion, works leading to righteousness, will not get to Jesus But then there's those who peddle this religion. Then there's those who promote this religion. Those who are entrapping people into this religion. They will receive uh, the greater condemnation. So everybody who does not embrace Jesus Christ as Lord, everybody who does not love Jesus Christ will ultimately face condemnation. Uh, The final verses of Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians says, if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be accursed. You will be anathema. Uh, but those who, uh, those who are leading people, those who are, uh, who are calling people into false religion, being a distraction from the truth, telling people to give up what the word of God says, but to fall into this system, uh, they will be condemned all the more harshly. Uh, if you've been part of Grace Fellowship Church for any length of time, you've likely heard us refer to the big rocks, the very foundational building blocks of our church, and one of them is that we are Bible-based, and that's a big deal. I think some people hear that, and they're like, you're Bible-based. Okay, that's like saying, like, a local gas station is, is fuel-based. Like, that doesn't really... You're a church, right? Like, of course you're, of course you're Bible-based. It's a big deal. Uh, not every church rolls that way. We really want to draw all that we know, all that we preach all that we teach, uh, all that we build our lives upon to be solidly rooted in the word of God. It's why when Pastor Brad goes away every summer to pray and to plan out what we'll preach next year, he doesn't come back with a, I've been here 17 years, he's never come back with a 12-step plan to better living or the latest, greatest pop psychology or some trendy teaching. We always end up with a plan as to how we're going to spend our time in God's word Because we're Bible-based. And quite frankly, being Bible-based and going to God's word and pouring time, blood, sweat, and tears and effort into studying God's word before we present sermons, before we decide what is taught at our church, is a phenomenal protection against false teaching. We are Bible-based. What about you? To what degree are you Bible-based. Does that, is that, does that characterize your life? You're Bible-based. When you're thinking through how to handle a certain situation in life, 
how often does God's word come to mind? It doesn't have to be a specific verse. I'm just asking the priority level. Like, do you think, I wonder what God's word says about that? Not, I know what God's word says about that, but how often, or, or let me put it this way, how long does it take for God's word to come to mind? When you're considering a certain situation in your life, do you immediately go to God's word? Or do you eventually go to God's word? There's a pretty big difference between the two. Eventually coming to God's word allows time and space, your own experiences, your own feelings to shape your next step. And it may or may not line up with God's word. But if you start with God's word, if you immediately think, I really believe that the Bible is sufficient, that gives me all I need for life and godliness, uh, that enables me and equips me to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I'm going to start there. If you start with God's word, if you immediately go to your Bible, or you immediately talk to somebody and say, help me understand what God's word says about this situation because I want to honor God in this situation, you can take steps that are pleasing to God And that would mean you are Bible-based. I voted on Friday. Don't panic. Election Day is Tuesday. But there was an early opportunity to vote, and I'm going to be traveling on Election Day, so I voted on Friday. I'm registered with a political party with which I'm affiliated, but I don't eat, breathe, and sleep that affiliation. In fact, most days it has very little bearing on my life. It's not a core part of my identity. It's most days, the vast majority of days. It literally doesn't matter. When it comes time to vote, my affiliation matters. Does, does, does that make sense? I mean, if it's not time to vote, it's not shaping what I do as I drive to work. So I'm registered as this, so I probably should do that. It doesn't, it doesn't come to mind often. Are you affiliated with the Bible? Like just a loose connection to the Word of God every once in a while? Or is your life Bible-based? Being Bible-based will keep you from false teaching. Being Bible-based will keep you from falling prey to false teachers. Uh, Bank tellers are trained to recognize counterfeit currency, not by studying counterfeits, but by studying the real thing. Uh, The more they study the real thing, the more they study actual bills, the more the counterfeits will stand out. And the more familiar you are, the more Bible-based you are, the better you'll be at recognizing false religion and false teachers, where you might hear something and say, I've never thought about exactly what I'm hearing, but it doesn't sound like it lines up with God's word. You get that little, little, little check engine light, which doesn't mean that you need to pull over and stop driving immediately, but I, I should probably look into that. I should probably see why that light is on because I'm, I'm familiar with God's word. I haven't memorized it all, but I'm familiar enough with God's word to know um, that, doesn't sound, that doesn't jive with what I think to be true of God's word. Let me look into that. Being Bible-based is the greatest uh, protection from false teaching. Now, sometimes shift gears a little bit. Sometimes biblical accounts are told or taught in such a way that there's application given that isn't necessarily wrong, but it may not be just right. 
Again, sometimes biblical accounts are told or taught in such a way that there's application given that isn't necessarily wrong, but it's not really just right. You say, that. what do you mean by that? Well, it happens a lot, or there's a temptation for it to happen a lot when it comes to children's ministry or student ministry. Uh, in those circles, if, if well-meaning teachers or well-meaning leaders are more concerned with kids being good girls or good boys, but then they miss teaching the Bible. They see an opportunity to preach moralism instead of actually teaching them how to understand the word of God. And oftentimes the moral that is taught is, isn't wrong. It's not unbiblical. It's, it's, it's a good moral. But the application might even be scriptural. Like there's other parts of the Bible you can find that application. But it might not be based in the text that's being taught. For example, the biblical account of Noah and the ark can be taught in such a way uh, that kids think it's a great reminder of how God cared for animals or that nobody builds a boat like God. Is that true? On some, okay, yeah, on some level that's true. I don't think that's the primary application we should draw from that text. But yes, technically speaking, if you're building a boat and God's building a boat, God will build a better boat. But that's, okay, that's not what we're trying to draw out of the scriptures here. David and Goliath could be taught in a way that kids know that they can do great things even though they're small. True, you can please God at whatever age you're at. But my gosh, if that's all we take away from that account, I think we've missed something. Jesus fed thousands with five loaves and two fish can be taught as a great reminder to share your lunch with others. Uh, Jesus is walking on water and calls Peter to him. Peter walks on the water towards Jesus but sees the waves, he becomes afraid, he starts to sink, and Jesus pulls him up to safety. The moral of the story is never swim alone. I made that one up. I've never heard that taught ever. But it was just, as I was thinking of it, I thought, I mean, that's, okay, that's true, but that's probably not the best application of that passage. Thus far, we've been talking about false teachers and false teaching. Jesus is pronouncing warning and judgment. No, no question. Like, that's obvious. That's where we ended as we closed Luke 20. Uh, if you look at Luke 21 and verse 5, Luke 21 verse 5, Jesus is clearly pronouncing warning and judgment all the way through the end of the chapter. In fact, there's no change in place or day or time in the text. It seems to be one scene. It's, it's all the same scene. And then in our text today, we have this seemingly random commercial break of sorts where Jesus teaches on giving for four verses. Uh, Look at verse 1, Luke 21, beginning in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And so the question is, what application do we draw from that particular text? Some focus on the fact that Jesus says the widow gave, quote, all she had to live on. In fact, most times when this text is taught, that's the the part of that text that's really focused on. She gave all she had to live on. And so the purpose of this account is to illustrate that God measures our gifts not based on what we gave, but what we held back. Uh, that's, yes, what, what you're, God obviously sees the whole picture, and so that's not untrue. 
God knows what I give and what I don't give. Some say it's about self-denial. Again, focusing on the fact that she gave all she had to live on. There's certainly some truth to that. God loves a sacrificial giver, and we should do more than just tip him. Sometimes people look at this account and talk about the widow's attitude, causing us to ask ourselves, is our giving done willingly, wholeheartedly, happily, humbly, selflessly? There's an assumption that since the widow had nothing left, she must have an attitude that was pleasing to God. And while it's true that God builds ships better than any other, and it's really wise not to swim alone, uh, in this case, I think there's an element of truth in that, yes, our attitude about giving matters. Yes, the amount we give matters. I can't get around two problems. But first, the only option for applying this text is that the gift that truly pleases God is giving God everything. And that's not biblically, biblically based. Is Jesus teaching that like the widow, we're to give everything and go home and starve to death for the glory of God? I don't think so. In fact, nowhere does it say that he was pleased with her gift. Nowhere does it say that Jesus is pleased with her attitude. All those ideas are introduced to the text by us, but it doesn't, it doesn't say that. There's no go and do likewise. There's no blessed is she who has done this. In fact, it doesn't even say that he's displeased with the fact that the rich were giving. He's talking about what took place, but he mentions neither commendation nor condemnation. It's just not in the text. That's my first problem. My second problem is how foreign to the context of the passage it is for us to have Jesus issuing warnings, talking to the scribes and Pharisees, talking about condemnation, issuing judgments, and talking about what's going to happen, and then to have this commercial break, four verses on giving, and then we now return to our regularly scheduled judgment and condemnation already in progress. It just doesn't make sense to me as I read through the account. This seems to be an illustration of what Jesus had told us about the scribes. Take a look at 21 verse 1. We have the rich scribes walking around in their long robes and tassels being greeted by everyone as rabbi, remember? Flaunting what they're giving as they approach the offering box because they're kind of a big deal. Then in verse 2, Luke 21 verse 2, a poor widow, the exact opposite comes forward and puts in two small copper coins. Uh, two small, the lowest denomination available at the time. Uh, two, two pennies in our time. Uh, two small copper coins into the offering box. And then in verse 3, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Like, don't be deceived. Don't admire those, those rich people giving a lot. They're giving out of their abundance. It's like Jesus is saying, see, this is what I'm talking about. Here's this false religion on display for you. The scribe gives a lot, but it's all for show. He's giving out of his abundance. You see what he gave, and it seems like a lot, and you're like, whoa, but I see what he didn't give. And here's this widow caught up in this system of false religion. She has only two coins to rub together, and she just gave them all she has to live on. This is what I'm talking about. And so in your outline to hopefully better illustrate the flow that I see, 
Uh, I have typed up our entire passage without paragraph break or chapter break for us to read through together. I put the verses in there just so you can know a little bit about where we're at. But if you look in your outline, uh, this is what we see. This is how it would have read as Luke penned this because there were no chapter breaks and no subject titles. There were no little italicized words that said the widow's gift or anything like that. It was just the text. This is what we would have heard or this is what we would have read. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put, two, put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more of all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And so it's not that, I don't think it was that Jesus was like fighting mad at the scribes through the end of chapter 20, then like smiles at what the widow does for four verses. And it goes back to being fighting mad about the scribes. Rather, he remains fighting mad, consistently angry throughout the whole thing and was upset that this false religion is fixed. It's corrupt. It makes much of the scribes and takes the very last cent from the four. And then in verse five, Jesus goes on to continue pronounced judgment for literally the rest of the chapter. And that checks out, right? Money is at the heart of false religion. I'm a former Roman Catholic. So was Martin Luther. He was outraged, outraged at the selling of indulgences when people were told that for the right price, they could reduce the suffering of their family members in purgatory, when in reality, uh, Roman Catholics were just raising money to build the Sistine Chapel, which still stands today, as does the selling of indulgences through the selling of mass cards and other things. Martin Luther couldn't stand what it was doing to his flock that he cared for so much. And so he nailed the now famous 95 Theses to the door of a chapel in Wittenberg, Germany, which started the Reformation. He did this in protest, and that protest against the selling of indulgences is why, to this day, we are called Protestants or Protestants, because our heritage is such that we protested the idea that one could buy favor with God on behalf of another. We protested the deadly idea of false religion. The title of the sermon is Lies Can Cost You Everything. So often, an issue with money is at the heart of false religion, a system that will lead you not to God, but to condemnation. So often, those who are impacted by false religion, the most are the ones that are most vulnerable and most in need. And so you need to know that false religion isn't just something that's different It's not just something that's disturbing. It is, in every way, shape, and form, deadly. I, if I can repeat something and leave you with something, let me repeat that I would not recommend spending a year in Jeremiah. Did we all get that? I was clear on that. It's a pretty rough go at it. 
But you know what? God's word never returns void. And I remember being impacted by Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 14 in particular, which I've put in your bulletin. It says, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Which brings us to our final point. You need to know that refusing Christ's compassion and rejecting Christ's invitation brings Christ's condemnation. Uh, Refusing Christ's compassion, rejecting Christ's invitation brings Christ's condemnation. The greatest weapon Satan has at his disposal isn't witchcraft, it isn't spells, it's not all the seemingly dark and scary things. The greatest weapon Satan has at his disposal is very simple. It's a lie. That's it. It's a lie. If he can get you to believe a lie, he's got you. The greatest weapon at Satan's disposal for him to use, it's not all the catastrophes, it's not all the calamities, it is a lie. And the most powerful lie he wants you to believe he wants everybody to believe is simple. It's a very simple lie. It's not something big that would stand out. Come drink blood. It's like, that's weird. I'm not even a Christian and that's weird. Like, like let's say someone who's like, I'm not, I'm not even a Bible believer, but that's bizarre. It's not the big stuff. It's little. And the greatest lie that Satan wants you to believe and wants everybody to believe is simple. It's made up of two words. You're fine. You're fine. That's it. It's a very simple lie. If you look at Satan's appearance in Genesis chapter 3, he's not coming in holding a pitchfork. He's not breathing fire. He's not vomiting. He's not doing anything. He just says, hey, he is a talking snake. That's a little odd. But that aside, he just asks, did God really? Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And then he issues a lie. You will not, you're not going to die. Look at that tree. It's just a fruit tree. Eat of the fruit. You're not going to die. The greatest weapon Satan has at his disposal is a lie. The greatest false religion you could ever believe is that you're fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. You'll be fine. You don't need Jesus. Just do the things. Do all the right things. Keep doing what you're doing. You'll be fine. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 14. Peace, peace. When there is no peace. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, we've seen his compassion for people. He doesn't keep his distance from them. He's not disgusted by their sin. Jesus Christ loves sinners. Jesus Christ has compassion on sinners. Jesus Christ invites sinners to come to him, to repent and believe in him, to be saved from the wrath to come. Jesus is compassionate. It's 100% true. Jesus invites sinners to come to him. That's 100% true. Jesus condemns sinners who refuse his compassionate invitations. That's 100% true. 
Refusing Christ's compassion and rejecting Christ's invitation brings Christ's condemnation. And just like God prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 6 and again in Jeremiah chapter 8 about people who are preaching falsely, saying, peace, it's fine. Peace. There's peace. You'll be at peace. Uh, When there was no peace to be had. Believing the lie of, you're fine. I mean, look at your life. If you were doing something wrong with with this, you're fine. I mean, I'm sure Jesus would make it a little better, but you're good the way you are. You're fine. Peace. 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 No peace without Jesus. Uh, There is no peace without Jesus. Refusing Christ's compassion and rejecting Christ's invitation brings Christ's condemnation. Jesus has been compassionate throughout his earthly ministry. No question. No question. Uh, Jesus has issued invitations. Come and see. Come and follow. Come and be with me. Come. Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come. Come. He is compassionate. He does invite. He also condemns. If you would for a moment, if you are willing, would you close your eyes for just a moment? Someone you know and care for is believing a lie. You know it. God knows it. And they don't have a clue. Would you take a moment to silently pray that God will grant them repentance? Would you take a moment to silently pray that God will show them his saving truth, that God will grant them saving faith? Maybe God is showing you today that that person is you. That you have believed the lie. That you have bought into the false religion of you're okay, I'm okay, everybody's okay. Peace. Peace. When there is no peace. Satan would want nothing more than for you to continue believing that lie. But God can rescue you today. Today. If you pray to God and tell him you believe in him and you believe that Christ died for your sins and you believe that God accepted his payment on your behalf and you believe that his victory over sin and death means you will have victory over sin and death. If you're a Christian, would you take this moment to thank God that he has shown you the truth? Reminding ourselves and giving him all the glory that it's not because we were looking so hard for him because we were so good, but we love him because he first loved us. Would you thank God that he has kept you from the lie that you're 
you're good on your own? Would you thank God that he has given you a love for him? Would you thank God for him giving you grace to persevere in this life? Grace to press on, grace to stand before the throne of God with a strong and perfect plea, not because of your record, but the sinless, spotless record of Jesus Christ. Would you take a moment to thank God? Lord, all these things we pray for your glory. Lord, all these things we pray because we can boldly approach your throne of grace in this hour, hour of need. We can, we can say thank you and we can say please give more. We can say thank you for what you've done and we could say we need more, we need help. We can say thank you for showing us your love. Please show him or her, your love. Please save them from the lie that Satan would have them believe. Lord, would you hear our prayers? Would you answer our prayers for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.